Okay, that all said, let's, um, let's turn back to Luke chapter 16, and let's continue our look at this parable known as the rich man and Lazarus. It begins in verse 19. I'll begin reading at that verse and read to the end of the chapter. Luke 16 at verse 19. Here it goes. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner had bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Hey guys, um, I said last week that this is perhaps the least known and the most unpopular of all of Jesus' parables. And, and I'm sure you can see why. Um, it contains content from which our souls instinctively recoil. Now guys, I am by no means trying to make apologies for this text. I would, however, understand if this series of sermons is not among your favorite. Um, But but, um, beyond that, guys, um, I understand that we don't enjoy being confronted with subjects like these. Um, But tell me, where do you go? when you have questions about matters such as these? To whom do you turn? I mean, guys, there's some pretty important stuff in here. 
And, and where do you get your concepts? Where do you get your information concerning the matters that are discussed in here? This is important stuff, and I hope, I hope you will embrace all of it. Because this stuff is, um, these are big issues. Big issues for every one of us. So, as for me in my house, I'm glad to have somebody just address it. You know, with some kind of information, some kind of input for me. Because this business, this is big time stuff. Now, um, we, we come to verses 22 and 23 in the story. And the scene abruptly shifts from the, the earthly existence of these two men to the eternal existence of these two men. And, and as I said last week, this study in contrasts, it continues in spades. Because, guys, the earthly states of these two men, oh, they differed greatly. But their eternal states differ far more than did their, their earthly states. And, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that in a, in, in a minute. But before we get to all that, we're told in this parable that both of these men experience something that is common to all of mankind. They both die. And that event, death, transports us to an entirely different realm. You know, I call it an event. But, you know, that's such a gross understatement. It's, it's so much more than an event. I, I don't even know what to call it. I could call it a... A cataclysm? I could call it um, the last enemy, which is what the scriptures in 1 Corinthians calls it. But, but whatever you call it, guys, um, I long for somebody to give me some information concerning it. Would somebody tell me something? that I can bank on when it comes to this event, this, this cataclysm. Because, ladies and gentlemen, um, very frankly, death doesn't notice whether you're eating crumbs or croissants. Death doesn't recognize whether you're dressed in robes or rags. It, it, it doesn't matter because... Everyone dies. And, and most of us at times talk like and plan like we're going to live forever. But the truth is, the obits in the, in the morning newspaper one day is going to include our names. Because um, we're all going to die. Which is really no new news. Uh, we, we all agree about that. What we don't agree about is what happens next. 
And you know what? This parable addresses that. <laughs> um, and, and I, for one, am, am grateful that, I, I, that I've got some input as to a very substantial reality that I have to face. You know, people the world over are desperate to try and to try and um, convince themselves that that death is no enemy, like like the scripture says it is. And and maybe you've heard of this whole um, Kubler Ross, a life after life, OBE, out of the body experiences movement. I mean, it's been around for quite a while, but. Um, I'm of the opinion that that, that, that whole thing um, is, is, is an attempt to take the sting out of death without having to turn to Christ. But guys, no matter um, how many people you, you have around you, no matter how many people are around your deathbed holding your hand, um, you're still, pretty much, you're going to die alone. Um, some years ago, a, um, a woman who writes for the New York Times magazine, she said this, and I, and I thought she said it pretty well, and I'm, I'm quoting her. Her name is Ann Patchett, and she says, Staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes, whether it is exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram. We're always trying to find out what the profile is and then making sure we don't fit it. But in spite of all of our great intentions, death, for the most part, is still absolutely random. You know, guys, if you'll listen to this parable, it'll do you a favor. I mean, it, it'll, it'll, <laughs> it is one of the, I mean, where else are you going to turn to get some information? I, I'm telling you, this parable will do us a favor. You know, when we Westerners are faced with a, with a raw run-in with death, it's, it's a traumatizing experience for us because we, we so rarely encounter it at all. And when, and when we do encounter it, we encounter it in its most domesticated form. Um, in, in our modern cultures, the one like we're in, we tend to embrace this attitude of full denial of, of, of death. Um, and at all costs, we're committed to trying to keep death at an arm's length. And then at death, we spend thousands of dollars trying to disguise a, uh, the, the harsh reality Another author said this, and I'm, I'm quoting him too, so hope you don't mind that. But he says, the West has developed an elaborate procedure for hushing up death. In America and Europe, people no longer die at home in full view of the family. They die in hospitals, cut off from the world around them. Even family members just visit. They don't experience death up close. In the final scene of this arid drama... The doctor comes in and solemnly informs you he's passed away or he's gone. Euphemisms abound. 
They don't even have the courage to say, he's dead. People in the West go to funerals out of a sense of obligation, but no one wants to go. It is discomforting to see a dead body in a casket. We don't like to be put through this, and we can't wait to get out of there and back to our normal life in the West. People don't die. They just disappear. (laughs) Guys, we may have succeeded in fooling ourselves, but another author said this, just a sentence. He said, death cancels everything but truth. And the truth is, we're all going to die. And, and if you'll listen to this parable and embrace its message, it'll do you a favor. You know, unless we're lucky enough to, to die in our sleep of a massive heart attack, um, we're going to have to face this. And what I'm saying is, this parable will help you. It ought not be so unpopular. In fact, it ought to be welcome information. And this parable says to us, death is not the end. That's the first thing it says. And then secondly, it says that the decisions that we make here, now, have enormous repercussions. Life here determines life hereafter. You know, our our, our character is not remade or... Or, or remodeled there. The issue is settled here. One way or the other. And this parable will help us, I think. I think it'll help us settle the issue. Now, notice that um, once these two men die, they end up in, um, as you might imagine, in vastly different places. As I said earlier, their their earthly existence differed a lot, but their eternal states, they, they differ far, far more. We are not told in the text um, that Lazarus ever had a funeral, except maybe the ones the angels performed on him. In fact, uh, if you were poor, you're, in this culture, the, the body was usually dumped on the, the garbage heap outside of town, outside of Jerusalem, called Gehenna. Um, we're not told either that the, um, that the rich man had a funeral, but we are expressly told in the text that he was buried which is something we're not told about Lazarus. But, you know, you, you, um, you surely, you, you gotta, you gotta believe that those five brothers of his made sure that, that he was buried with all the kind of pomp and circumstance that, that you would expect with a rich man. But <clears throat> the text doesn't tell us that, but it does expressly say that he was, that he is, he, that he was buried. So you have two men, one rich, one poor, both died. 
That, that's what the, what the parable starts with. Um, one goes to heaven, which is the good side of the story. That, that language of Abraham's bosom or the bosom of Abraham in the ESV, it says Abraham's side. But that was a Hebrew idiom, guys. It was, um, um, it was a very meaningful term for a Jew. Uh, it was the equivalent of a, of a place of rest and protection and safety and quietness. And, and for, for believers, for Christian believers, we believe that that's what's awaiting us. Well, um, what, what we're told is that, that one of these men dies uh, and goes to heaven. Um, <laughs> and then the other one, um, he dies and... Um, he goes to hell. Now, gang, the, the question before the house is this. Um, why was the rich man uh, lost and the poor man saved? We're not specifically told in the parable, um, but we are told elsewhere in the New Testament. And, and that's what I want to examine in our remaining time. Well, why, why does one end up one place and one end up the other place? Okay? But before we get to that, let me tell you some things that we do know that the New Testament teaches us. First of all, we know this. Um, we know that no man was ever lost simply because he was rich. Guys, wealth is not condemned in the Scriptures. In, in fact, there's a lot of nice, kind... Uh, um, humble, righteous, rich people. The, the Bible gives you two examples in Abraham and Job. No man was ever lost simply because he was rich, nor was any man ever saved simply because in this world um, he was poor and miserable. The Bible never praises poverty. In fact, what the Bible does say is that God distributes both of those as he sees fit and that God is to be glorified in, in both of those conditions, in both of those positions. So um, it's, it's not their earthly position that has anything to do with their eternal state. What, one other thing that we, that we know is that, is that from these positions of wealth and poverty, uh, both of them have their, 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 their distinct advantages and they both have their unique temptations. For instance, the wealthy, we have to, we have to wrestle with things like greed and high-mindedness and selfishness. The poor have to wrestle with envy and and hate and resentment. And so the, the, the point is, from either position, men can go to heaven. And from either position, men may slide into hell. You know, often the rich plead their wealth as an excuse for their irreligion. And, and the poor, they plead their woes as their excuse. Neither excuse is valid. Something more is needed than sores and hunger to save you guys. Um, there are those who would hope 
that, that God is going to make it up to the poor in the, in the next world. They're, it's called liberation theology. But no such thing is said in the scriptures. That, that, that's not anywhere taught in the Bible. So we're back to our question. How, how does the beggar become rich and the rich man become poor? Let, let's start with the rich man. How does the rich man become poor? Guys, um, even while the mourners mourned, where was this man? Well, Jesus tells us in the parable, he tells us that he was in torment, anguish. Oh, but Jimmy, I, I, I thought, I, I, I mean, I was told that, that, that hell was here on earth. Aren't you glad you got a parable like this, folks? Because this might correct some of our faulty thinking. No, ladies and gentlemen. No, that's not true. That's a very popular and a very, uh, uh, particular in the media, very uh, often repeated uh, notion. It's just not true. In fact, by the way, do you know where we get most of our information about this doctrine of hell that we hold to? You know where it comes from? Yeah, I know where it comes from. I mean, it came from it came from Paul, that bachelor, you know, that 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 that, that, that uh, woman hater, that crusty old curmudgeon. No, it didn't come from Paul. Oh, oh, oh I know where it came from. I know where the information it came from. The Old Testament. That book's full of wrath. You know, when people say things like that to me, I, I, I always like to reply like this. I want to I ask, I say, uh, let me quote two verses of scripture for you. And then I want to ask you a question. Here's the first verse. For our God is a consuming fire. Here's the second verse. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, and then I ask, out of what testament do both of those verses come? And I guess you've guessed it by now. It's not the Old Testament. It's the New. No, ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't the New Testament. Well, I, I, I guess indirectly it's the New Testament. You know where we get most of our information about this doctrine? It's from Jesus. And for us to reject it is to say we know more than he does. But I want you to notice one other thing. He doesn't say a word about purgatory. Wait a minute. Now, that's, that's helpful. Um, I, I'm just telling you guys, um, th- this parable is doing us a favor. Doesn't say a word about it, nor does he say a word about it any other place. But, but back to the, the question, how does the rich guy become poor? What was his sin? The, the poverty of Lazarus was not his righteousness, Neither is the wealth of the rich man his sin. It's no sin to be rich. His sin. His sin was that he sought to be content without God. Or or said differently, he sought contentment in things. And the Bible has a word for that, guys. It's called idolatry. Putting something, anything, in the place where only God should be. 
God's he who never thirsts for God here. will thirst for him before he is dead ten minutes. You know, Satan would have us to believe that, that death is the end. It isn't. Not according to Jesus. In fact, there is a place in the New Testament, guys, um, in John 14, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus stakes his whole character on the existence of eternity. It goes like this. Um, Jesus says, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. And then he says this. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ does not say that any other place in the New Testament. He says, verily, verily a lot, or truly, true. But he never says, if it were not so, I, I, I would not have told you. It's as if he understood how, how difficult it was for us to fathom eternity. And so he says, okay, I understand it's difficult for you. But if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no Savior but Christ. And this man never sought him because his wealth got in his way. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no sin as great as thinking that I don't need Christ. Nothing compares to that. And that's the sin of the rich man. I don't need a savior. Do you think like that? You know, this parable is doing us a favor. Because it gives us all the chance to, to wonder... Do I think like that? Do I think that I am good enough to be acceptable to God without his Savior? Or do I think that when I die, it's all over anyway? Because if you think like that, let me just point this out. Your thinking runs completely contrary to a parable given to us by Jesus Christ himself. Something to at least wrestle with, don't you think? Because this is pretty important stuff. Finally, uh, how does the, the poor man become rich? Um, let me say real quickly, it wasn't his poverty. It wasn't his afflictions <clears throat> that, <clears throat> that made him rich. You know, affliction's a funny thing. Um, affliction won't save you, 
But it does get your attention, does it not? I mean, it. <laughs> um, and, and affliction can do one of two things. It can either soften you or, or it can harden you. The Bible says that several places, um, but the place that I like the best is in, you don't need to turn, but it's in Isaiah 9. I'm going to read verse 10 to you. But th- this is a juncture in, in the history of Israel where, where Isaiah the prophet is saying to Israel, um, God is judging you for your idolatry. And then Isaiah, speaking as if Israel were talking, Isaiah says this, They say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Do you know what that is? That's defiance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you knock down our walls that we built out of rocks. (laughs) We'll show you. We'll build them back with dress stones. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you took our sycamores, did you? Well, watch this. We'll replace our sycamores with, uh, with cedar trees. They said in their pride and in their arrogance of heart, you won't break me. Bring it on. Well, contrary to that, Lazarus in his affliction seems to have learned a lesson. Um, And the lesson that he learned is something like this. He learned that it was useless for him to try and find his happiness in things of this world. And Though that is not stated in the parable, here's what is stated in the parable. Jesus gives this man a name. Lazarus. And the name means God is my help. Lazarus sought his refuge in God. He sought, he sought his refuge outside of himself. You know, guys, that's about the only thing we're given inside the parable about Lazarus is, is that name. But the rest of the New Testament gives us a whole bunch. The rest of the New Testament tells us that the righteousness of God is on display in this thing that we call the gospel. That, the, that the, this message that we call the gospel, inside it is a display of God's great righteousness. And inside this message, it tells us that God loves sinners. And that that love, listen, that love is the source Of our redemption, not the consequence. Do you understand that? Um, That is, Christ's work, Christ's finished work, the atonement, did not procure the love of God for us. No, no. 
the, the finished work of Christ, the, the atonement flowed out of the love of God for us. It wasn't as if Christ had to do this great thing so that he could make his father into somebody who was loving. No, no, no. But because he was loving, this, this provision for sinners has been made. God does not love me because Christ died for me. Christ died for me because God loved me. And that is where I have found my refuge. And that is where Lazarus found his. Now, where have you found yours? As far as I'm concerned, this parable has done us a favor. Because it gives us a chance to ask. Where do I go to find safety for my soul? Our Father, uh, we are grateful that you have made a way for people as wicked as I am to find forgiveness of sin. That, that though I've earned nothing but death and judgment, that what you've given me out of pure, unmerited favor, what you gave me is forgiveness and reconciliation. That you have swept me into the family of God by the finished work of Christ who did his job because a God of love sent him Father, um, might we too find the great safety of our souls in Christ and his finished work and nowhere else. Might, um, might Christ's atonement be our refuge. And Father, if you brought here this morning, people who have not yet found that refuge, would you first convince them that their sin needs a Savior and that you have provided the Savior who produces a refuge for people like me. And I pray, Father, that you will grant that uh, out of grace and mercy. And we pray it, of course, in Jesus' name.